Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we are interviewing Mark Bernard, and he is from Australia. He is a missionary to the Far East, and today we're going to be talking to him about his experiences in the Far East and some uh, interesting historical material that he has come across. Mark, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, thank you. I probably should begin by clarifying that uh, I'm not currently a missionary uh, in in any traditional sense of the word. I, I have done work in a number of countries in Asia, but at the moment I'm working in IT in Sydney and raising my four kids along with my wife of 20 years who comes from Taiwan. So similar to yourself, actually, Chris, I, I grew up in a, with a Christian background, Christian home. My father was actually a Methodist minister. So I grew up with that traditional, probably semi-Calvinistic theology, I guess. I, the, the term Calvinism and Arminianism was never really tossed around. I mean, I'm talking early days prior to high school, you know. Um, but I regard my salvation as taking place when I was about 14, uh, and that was through an outreach. There was, a, there was a small charismatic renewal in the 1970s in parts of Australia. Wollongong, where I grew up, was one of those. And um, part of that was, was an outreach called the Hamburger Hut, where I went along and encountered what I thought for the first time were real, real Christians who weren't just religious Christians. Um, and to me, that was quite different and very attractive. And so I, I sort of bought into that more real version of Christianity, if you like, and made a commitment to the Lord Jesus, which was probably more informed than previous ones I've made. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I'll take that as a, a starting point in terms of, of salvation. But even at that point, I mean, I'd always grown up with the big questions, and maybe I was more philosophical than most kids my age, but I was always, I guess that probably comes with having a Christian family, right, is that you you do wrestle with those issues of what is reality, what is true, uh, what can I know, and how is how do I know that, and then how does it all make sense, both as a belief system with internal coherence, but how does it make sense with my experience with the universe and life and school and dramas with friends and parents and things as well. So, but the, the, the question in my mind, I guess, was always around evil, you know. So how is it that evil exists? Why is it that God has allowed evil to exist? That was a big struggle for me in primary school days, in early high school days in particular. And there was always the right Christian answer, you know, which was that, that God has allowed evil for certain reasons and has ways of bringing good out of it. But at the ultimate level, I guess, for me, it wasn't satisfying because you still have that question around uh, reading something like the, the Hiroshima atomic bomb or reading about the Vietnam War or reading about the Holocaust under Adolf Hitler. And you kind of just think how, or in fact, the, the more relevant issue back then was, was Cambodia, right? So the Vietnamese invaded mm-hmm. Cambodia in 78 and kicked out the Khmer Rouge, who under Pol Pot had run you know, a despotic, torturous kind of just hell on earth for about three years. He killed roughly one-third of his population. Tortured and murdered two million people out of a population of six million. And we we didn't know this, right? And this started to come out in, I think I was in year six uh, at primary school or middle, what you might call middle school, when we started seeing documentaries on this stuff because nobody had been allowed in there. And those who did, I don't know, didn't get any airtime or something. But you just start to, you, you hear the testimonies of these people. You know, this is what they did to me at the Slong, Twing, whatever it was, the prison, the jail, that most people never survived, but some people did. And you just, your head is spinning. 
you know, thinking tr- such tremendous evil, right? And and we kid ourselves if we think that kids don't think like this, I believe, right? Um, they may not ask those questions, but I honestly, I certainly based on my own experience, I think kids, they do process this stuff. They do want to have answers for that. And they will come to some tentative conclusions on their own if we have not got open communication channels with them to help them surface those questions and answer them, you know? So... So I was just thinking about it and thinking, how, how can God let this happen? There's something wrong with this picture, you know? And we all know that, right? And we all struggle with the question, why does God allow evil? Mm-hmm. But then when it comes down to ultimate causes, you've got to say, well, if God knew all this was going to happen, how, why was it that he kicked this off in the first place, you know? And that was my big question. It's like, wh- why would God do this? Take the entire history of the human race, and you can go back to Genghis Khan, you can talk about the Assyrians, the Babylonians, mass crucifixions, mass atrocities on you know a grand scale that, that fade into insignificance. Now the Armenian massacre under the Turks, a million Armenian Christians, you know, murdered, tortured, crucified, slowly, whatever. And um, you look at all that and you just think, if God knew this was going to happen, right? He knew it was going to happen when he started the whole planet. Why? How does it make sense? And the answer was always, well, you know, because out of it he was going to bring a good thing, which was that there would be a remnant that would be saved, you know. There might be maybe 5 or 10 or 20% of the human population would end up becoming the bride of Jesus and living with him forever, which is a fantastic, wonderful thing. Yeah, the argument always is that it's some sort of utilitarian calculation. Well, maybe that's what it was. I'm... That valuable outcome was justified, then justified all of this other tragedy that went along with it and the other 80% of humanity that was going to be away from God and from Christ forever, you know. And it's it's hard to do that math. But if you're committed as a Christian, then um, you've got to do that somehow or you've got, to, you've got to do three things, I guess. You can walk away from Christianity, which a lot of people do. You can live with the cognitive dissonance, which most Christians do, or you can find an answer to the to the question. You know, um, real quick on that, uh, you know, the atheist scholar Bart Ehrman, he says the reason that he left Christianity, he was a hardcore Calvinist Christian, went to Bible seminary. The reason he left Christianity was the problem of evil. And uh, you read this in his book. um, I don't know the name offhand, but it's about evil. And he says that's the reason. Out of everything else, he used to be a committed fundamentalist Calvinist. He left Christianity for evil. And I can understand that. But I guess that you want to break that down in two ways. There's the question on the one hand, which is why does God allow evil? And you can answer that in certain ways. But then it's a different question to say if God knew from the beginning that evil would occur if he created the physical universe and the human race and the angels and Lucifer for that matter. And that's an interesting one when we start to talk about the Chinese perspective because they picked up on that as well. Um, If God knew with absolute foreknowledge that all of this evil would happen and then he kicked off this process anyway, then does you know he's ultimately responsible for all the evil that happened right and that that's an inescapable conclusion and you know i'm not the first to say that i think in western civilization and this is an interesting discussion right you can talk about nitschke and his treatise around in fact let me find the quote here because it's a it's an interesting one and it's actually quoted in the book uh, by the author who's talking about the chinese context because some of the chinese philosophers evaluating christianity and debating with early missionaries like matteo ricci they came to the same conclusion. So Nitschke in Thus Spake Zarathustra, uh, he had too many failures, this potter who had not learned his craft, but that he took vengeance on his pots and creations because they had turned out badly. 
that was a sin against good taste. The struggle with the justice of that is that you make bad pots and then you punish them for being bad, right? You knew that people right. were going to be evil and then you punish them for being evil. And that, you know, that would put me in the category of people who say, I cannot, I can't follow a God like that. It makes no sense. It, I would be an atheist if I had to believe that, you know, I really would. So we got onto that by talking about, oh, yeah, so, so Nitschke picked up on it. Bertrand Russell picked up on it in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, and basically said that this, the same basic argument, right? If God knew absolutely, we're not talking about a possible accident, a hypothetical possibility. We're talking about absolute infallible foreknowledge. If God knew 100% that after he kicked off the physical universe, created Lucifer, the angels, Adam and Eve, the earth, and all this kind of stuff, without a shadow of a doubt or a question, because we're talking about absolute foreknowledge that's infallible, he knew that Adolf Hitler would come along and do everything that he did in the Second World War with the the Holocaust. Then for God to choose, because he does have volition, to kick off the process that results in that, then he is culpable for the evil that occurs. Now, what's interesting is that you can, you can see this even in the Old Testament, right? When you look at, and so it's like God is actually teaching the, the Jewish race as he's you know, educating them in terms of culture and values and, you know, the, the children shall not be put to death for the sins of the father and, and so on. God is educating the, the early Hebrews and the nation of Israel in good godly values and wisdom and justice and all of these things that are necessary for a human society to function correctly. And he says, you've got an ox that goes off and gores somebody else's ox. So what needs to happen is the ox that gored the other one needs to be put to death. And then both of them, the carcasses are divided between the two men. However, if that person knew and if it was known in advance that this ox was in the habit of goring, and then he goes off and gores the other ox. Sorry, I'm, it's not goring another ox. It's goring another person. The ox mm-hmm. goes off and gores another person and he dies then the person who owns that ox is worthy of death because he knew the ox was going to gore somebody and he didn't lock it up and take appropriate measures, right? So already there is this culpability when you know the outcome of something. I'll add real quick that when David killed Uriah the Hittite, he didn't personally kill Uriah the Hittite. He just arranged the circumstances for Uriah to die. And and yet we're still guilty of murder. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So similar kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, we have the same concept in our laws today, which at least in, in the, the sort of Commonwealth nations is based on English common law, which was developed through the 13, 14, 1500s. The judges would actually sit there with a Bible on the stand in front of them. And when people would come with a conflict, they, if they didn't have a precedent, they would go back to the Bible, they would read that, and they would figure out what needed to be done. And so the concept of a duty of care actually comes from that precedent, which comes from what God was teaching the Israelites in the Old Testament. If you know that the slippery dip or the titter-totter is dangerous and you were informed by somebody that someone got hurt on that thing once and then you don't fix it and someone else gets hurt, then you can get sued for a certain amount of money based on the injury that was sustained. In fact, even that, you know, recompense through from, uh, by paying money, by suing someone, the amount that the judges decide, there is a quote that comes from the Old Testament. So you can see how that's trickled through into, into Western culture in particular. So Bertrand Russell's argument to say that if God knew that this was going to happen absolutely and he still chose to kick off the process, then he's guilty. That's actually, that conclusion is actually supported by Scripture you know, as well as by common sense, I guess you could argue. So it's, it's, it's a very difficult one to argue against. So these are the kind of things that go around in your head when you're trying to deal with these issues, and it will force you to one of those three conclusions. You'll find a resolution that actually makes sense 
or you'll live with the cognitive dissonance, like I believe many Christians do, or you'll end up becoming an atheist because you just cannot, or you know, a Muslim or a Buddhist or some other alternative, because you just can't reconcile this all-knowing God, similar to your, your philosopher friend who became an atheist from out of Calvinism. You can't live with that, you know, I, I don't think, and be philosophically consistent. So these questions were driving me, I suppose, through that, that whole thing. And I was fortunate, I would have to say, that uh, in my high school days, I think it was probably would have been about 15, 16 at the time, I spent a week at a youth with a mission school. And there was a gentleman lecturing for that week named Mike Sire, who I think you're familiar with. And so yeah. within yeah. the context of his lectures, he mentioned this concept that, you know what, maybe it's actually biblical that God's knowledge of the future is not absolute. And it was like, wow, <laughs> the implications of that are incredible, you know. And it, what it does is, does lots and lots of things, right? But one of the things it does do is to say, I can actually make sense now of a God who understood that evil is a possibility as soon as he creates any other creature with free will, whether it's an angel like Lucifer or Michael or Gabriel, whether it's a human being like Adam and Eve or you and me, when you give that free will to another creature, when you create them with that volition, then you create by necessity the potential for that person to choose or that being to choose to do evil. However, that is a necessary risk when you choose to create them with free will at all. And why would you create them with free will at all so that they can love you and enjoy you forever? Just the same way with us. We have children not so that we could control their every action, but so we could have a relationship with them. The, the, other, the other aspect, I guess, and you've touched on it with what you said about the reason that parents have children, but from a God perspective, if you like, the phrase that helped me to make this, to put the pieces, the final piece of the jigsaw puzzle, if you like, was a phrase that came from a, another teacher in Youth with a Mission, Dean Sherman. And the phrase was this, that free will is more valuable than the absence of evil. And the, the analogy that he used or the story that he used to, to illustrate that was that the idea that he has or had at the time a daughter, she's much older now, or I have a daughter, Michelle, who is 17 years old. Now she has free will, as we know, right? With that free will, she could choose to become a murderer. She could be choose to become a prostitute. She could choose to become any number of things. I cannot stop that. I could. I could lock her in her room for and ever and ever. But there is one, and even then, I couldn't stop her from cutting herself or doing some other kind of evil, right? But I can stop her, actually, from doing these things. There's a process called a lobotomy, right, where you sort of remove the first, the frontal lobe of the brain, which is where kind of like the superior decision-making and critical thinking areas of the brain are, right? So you legitimately, physically, and sometimes they do this for people in certain extreme circumstances, but you can remove that part of the front of the brain and then that person has no more free will. They will sit there and be a vegetable and drool all day long and need to be fed and need to be changed and, and looked after, but they will never commit evil. You can guarantee mm -hmm. that. But then they will also never turn around and say, I love you, daddy, let's go and do such and such, you know? So that is the, the illustration that clinched it for me. So free will being more valuable than the absence of evil, which is why God took a risk in the first place to create beings in his own image that had that, that free will, that volition. And, and when you read Genesis, you really get that sense. Uh, God creates man, and the first thing that God does is he invites Adam to name the animals. And, and the text says that God watched. God invited the animals to Adam to see what Adam would call them. 
there's a big sense of curiosity about relationship. God's interested in his new creation. He wants to know what that creation is going to do. And it's this, it's this curiosity and this uh, interrelationness that we really get from the creation story. Very true. And you know what's interesting is actually we, we ourselves as human beings play out that story with a whole bunch of movies about robots and artificial intelligence and inventing stuff that, quote, can learn. You know, one, one of the themes of all of those movies is what is this thing going to do now with the artificial intelligence that I have given it? You know, it's my curiosity about this robot that can learn by, about kicking a soccer ball around and try to score a goal against the other team's robots. And it's like, what is it going to do now that I've programmed it, but I haven't written the definitive outcome of that program? I've put the code in this thing to learn certain things and respond in certain ways but I don't know what those things and ways and stimuli will be, so let's watch what happens, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's on a minuscule scale in terms of the wisdom of God creating us in DNA and incredible complexity in, in human beings, or even animals for that matter, you know? What is the puppy going to do if I put the ball over here? You know, it's an interesting kind of thing to, to think about. So you researched some Chinese history and why China rejected Christianity. And so a lot of these arguments are basically what we've been talking about today. You're talking about God's God's culpability if God has foreknowledge or God's culpability if he is controls all things. So why don't you just give us a brief overview about the material that you have found and, and why ancient China, why the ancient Far East rejected Christianity? So in terms of, of the, the, the Chinese context, it's it's an interesting one. So it's probably worth backing up a little bit and covering a bit of the history there as well. So Christianity has been influ- introduced into China on at least three occasions, significant occasions. The first one goes back as far as the Nestorians in the late 600, 700 AD, right? And there is still, to this day, actually, you can go to the city of Xi'an and see a tablet which was discovered in the last 100, 200 years with the names of a a bunch of Nestorian missionaries who visited Xi'an, which was the capital of China at the time. And this stone is dated to a dynasty that that is around the 700s. And um, they weren't just visiting, they actually established, if I recall correctly, it was about 400, uh, you might call them churches, monasteries, Bible colleges. It was kind of all of the above. They were learning centers. They were the, the Christian equivalent of a Buddhist monastery where people could come and get taught. They could come for food and refuge. They were running Bible studies. They were running long-term Bible colleges. They were running discipleship programs. 400-odd of these centers of learning, Christian learning and Christian dissemination around China in the 700s. And then I don't have the details with me right now, but but an emperor came into power in that region of China who decided, you know what, this foreign religion is not acceptable to me and we're going to annihilate it. And basically he did. Uh, Christianity was was vanished from Chinese history for another six, seven hundred years, right? It wasn't until, well, Marco Polo visited Kublai Khan and brought the gospel at one point. There were other attempts to get the gospel in in the 1200s. This is, a, this is an interesting one. So it was, I believe it was Kublai Khan, who had conquered China at the time and was looking for something that was better than this strange mixture of of Confucianism and Buddhism and animism, which was the polytheistic religion of China at the time. And he was looking for something superior to that because he knew that, you know, God's in the rocks and God's in the trees and God's in the mountains. There had to be something bigger and better than that and a better philosophical system than worshipping gold statues of a fat man. 
which is what Buddhism had degenerated into. I mean, that's not the real Buddhism, but that's what it had become when it, by the time it had made the journey into China. So he actually sent to the West and requested the Pope to say, please send me 100 learned men. Now, he must have picked up something. I think it was Marco Polo was there earlier than that. And he picked up something. In fact, the request went through Marco Polo. And I should have read up on this stuff before we started. But I've got a one-week teaching on this thing. I I did 20 hours of lecturing on um, a Christian perspective on Chinese history and the development of Chinese culture at, at Youth with a Mission on three different occasions, I think. But I'm a little bit rusty. So, yeah, he was definitely there, and he communicated back from the emperor a request to the pope to say, send me 100 learned men in your scriptures and your religion, and we will convert, I will convert the entire empire. I'm ready for a new religion, me and my several hundred million subjects. And so what happened was the pope asked for volunteers. Two people volunteered, not 100, and they set off for Xi'an. It took them about four years before they gave up and turned back and said it was just too hard. And then into that vacuum came Islam, basically. And so Islam grew across uh, China at that that point in history. Although even that didn't take as strongly as the underlying animism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism. So the the second inroad was through the Catholics, Matteo Ricci, uh, Francis Xavier, and some of those sort of famous guys. And that's the point at which we... And then the third would be St. Taylor. So, um, but the, the second entry is, is where we pick up the dialogue between Matteo Ricci and some of those guys with not only the emperor, but the scholars. So the story of Matteo Ricci was that, that he went over and he was faced with an interesting set of options, right? I can go out and try to convert the masses one church at a time, or I can go straight for the emperor. If I win the heart of the emperor to Jesus, then I, you know, he will... I win the whole nation, right? Because he will make a declaration that we're all going to follow this God. Now, it doesn't mean everybody's instantly saved and converted. They have to make that decision themselves. But it creates a political and cultural atmosphere that is favorable to Christianity. So Matteo Ricci's idea was to win the heart of the emperor and have that trickle through the court of the mandarins and have that trickle through the rest of, of Chinese civilization. And he came pretty close to that. He certainly won a lot of respect among the scholars. He translated the scriptures. He translated a lot of um, mathematical texts from Europe into concepts that the Chinese could understand. He showed them new ways of doing mathematics and and, simple ways of doing complicated equations that they might take 600 lines of calculation to do that he introduced a way to do it in, you know, five or six. So he certainly gained the credibility with these guys and engaged in philosophical conversation as well. And then the, the philosophical conversation, as we've alluded to, was kind of diverted or hijacked by the Chinese drawing the same conclusions philosophically that Nitschke and Bertrand Russell and your atheist friend... Ehrman. Yeah, sorry, that's right. And so one of the quotes here I'll quote. So, this, so one of his interlocutors was a, uh, a monk by the name of Ru Chun. So I'm taking this from a book called China and the Christian Impact. I'll get the details to you so that you can put it up on the website. So the monk said that about about this concept of God knowing in advance that humans would sin, right? If it is said that he knew in advance from the moment man was created that he would surely commit a fault, but he, God, allowed him to act as man himself decided either for good or evil so as to decide whether he should be rewarded or punished, that is what is called trapping people with a net. In other words, you're creating people that you know are going to sin <laughs> and then tell them don't sin knowing that they're going to sin. And he says, how does that show him to be the master of all things or the master of heaven? So what do these words omniscient and omnipotent mean? 
so that the, again the same kind of contradiction or a similar a similar Chinese philosopher dealing with this thing Shu Dashao. If he did not know that Lucifer, having received such power from God, was going to rebel, then the master of heaven was lacking in wisdom. In other words, he's not omniscient. If he did know, then he was lacking in goodness, since it was he who created Lucifer. Anyone lacking in wisdom and goodness cannot be called the master of heaven, right? So the, the Chinese are picking up on this contradiction between absolute foreknowledge, omnipotence, and goodness, and say that all those three things can't exist uh, when you have evil, that God knew about and created and intended, therefore by creating it and being responsible for it. You know what I mean? The same dilemma that we... And, and in the book that I'm using, there are different Chinese philosophers who pick up different ones of those permutations. And, you know, one picks on uh, omnipotence and omniscience not being possible in light of human beings sinning further down the track. And another one picks up on a different view of that, omniscience and goodness or omnipotence and goodness. And the contradictions that come out of those things. And so you know, they're, they're attacking it from a few different angles, but all based on this presupposition that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, as well as good, and yet evil exists in the earth. You know? And I'm sure that that would not be the only... I mean, we happen to have these records because the Chinese at the time were good at writing these things down. In fact, they published their own tracts, right? So Matteo Ricci and the Christians were publishing little tracts and promoting the gospel and Christianity. And then these guys, whether they were coming from a Buddhist background or Confucian background, were publishing counter-arguments in, in their own written tracts. You know? And this is where these quotes are coming from. So there was certainly a rich philosophical debate going on. And this is, this is 1600s China. You know? uh, and yet we see the same thing in Nitschke. We see the same thing in Bertrand Russell. We see the same thing. In fact, I, I recently watched a debate recently, a few months ago, a debate between William Lane Craig and one of these professors, philosophers, who's an atheist, and he, his opening line, it was, it was interesting. You see, no criticism on William Lane Craig, right? He came primed for the debate, but he's so good at that that he gets into the mode and he was there with his 10-point argument about the existence of God. And I, I wish I could remember the gentleman's name. I will have to look it up. But he was kind of saying, you know what? I'd really like to have a discussion here. Can we really actually talk about this in a way that we could learn from each other because I really do have a problem and I'm actually willing to learn, but I just can't understand. He was actually a Jewish background. So I can't understand your God and the Holocaust. That's why I'm an atheist. I can't reconcile those two things. If you can explain that to me, I'm willing to listen and I'm happy to convert. I'm pretty sure he said that or something along those lines. He goes, mm -hmm. but I just can't do it because I can't see these two things coexisting. Your God and the Holocaust. You know, my ancestors were in that. I had great aunties who were gassed, etc. It's, it's as relevant today as at any time, you know. Another impact, implication of this, I guess, was a far more personal, a very good friend of mine, uh, and this is going back to teenage years, was a you know, similar Christian kind of thing, and he, he had times in his Christian life when he struggled with, you know, sin and temptation times in his Christian life when he was doing fine. And it was one of those times when he was doing fine, and he gets up in the morning, has quiet time, and he goes to pray, and he kind of starts out in God, and then he said, well, God, I, mean, I don't know what I'm praying for because you know what I'm going to say anyway. So, yeah, I don't really know why I'm here, actually. Um, so I'll just go off and make a cup of coffee. Um, and we ended up discussing this whole thing. It's like, so this, this concept of absolute foreknowledge makes that unfolding of human life completely a redundant thing, you know. And, and you and I become actors on a stage simply acting out a script that has been written since the foundation of the, the earth, you know. So then you come up with the contradiction of free will and then you get all the 
the idea, you know, the wrestling that goes on among Christians who who don't want to let go of one of one or several of these pillars of Calvinism, wrestling with the concept of free will in the context of God knowing everything anyway. And on a practical level, it, it disempowers a whole bunch of people's Christianity. Life only makes sense if it's an unfolding, unpredestined walk with, with God, you know? So you were a missionary in China. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did some work. I did some outreach there. I wasn't ever a long-term church planting missionary, but I've done outreaches YWAM style in Thailand and India and Hong Kong and China was one of those places. So do you want to tell us about your experiences? From my understanding, it is illegal to preach Christianity and distribute non-state-sponsored religious texts. What's interesting is, as one person put it, you can say anything about China and it will be true somewhere Um, because it's that big and that diverse. So there are provinces where you can openly preach the gospel and practice your Christianity like Zhejiang full of churches, the skyline's covered in crosses. As I understand it, I haven't been there recently, as in 20 years. Um, there are other parts of China where you'll be persecuted as a Christian and it's illegal to have meetings and the local police will break them up. And a lot of it depends on the, the local provincial authority or the, the, the county level authority. But what can be said is that there is a, still a dearth of Bibles, you know, regardless of the Amity Press and, and the Bible Society being able to print a million Bibles a year, it'll still take them 50 years to catch up with the number of Christians in China. So one of the big needs is still Bibles. Don't let anybody say that it's not. Although, I mean, DVDs and phones and stuff, electronic replication of the Bible makes it a little bit easier. Probably one of the big needs is, is good theological teaching. You know, there, there is a lot of heresy there are a lot of funny ideas. There is a bit of extremism in certain areas to say nothing of the cult called um, Eastern Lightning. But if somebody wants to research them, they can find plenty of material on, on the internet for that. They're like an extreme cult who are seriously dangerous. It, it's as diverse in China as it is in the US or here. You know, I mean, they've gone through the Cultural Revolution and all that, that communist um, period. They've come out the other side. A lot of people are still atheists. A lot of people are still completely agnostic, and there's a, a sizable minority of Christians, some say 10%, some 12 but certainly between 70 and 120 million Christians in a, a nation of about 1.7 billion, so it's not going to go away. The, the real question is this, will, will the, the Christians in China adopt a view of the world that says it's evil, we need to retreat from it, and... We just sit here and wait till Jesus comes and we don't influence the school education system. We don't influence the media. We don't influence the communications. We don't influence the business world. We don't influence politics. We don't influence any of these spheres of society or what it's trendy now in the U.S. to call the mountains. Or whether they adopt a Christian worldview that says God has called us to disciple the nation and we will go straight for the presidency. We'll go straight for CCTV. We'll go straight for every newspaper and media we can get our hands on, we'll go straight for the Department of Education, we'll go straight for all of these areas of influence because God has called us to be salt and light. My guest today has been Mark Bernard coming to us from Australia. If you like this episode, please feel free to hit like on uh, either SoundCloud or on the webpage. If you have any comments or questions about this podcast, feel free to put that on our God is Open webpage or our Facebook companion site. We'd love to talk to you there. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 